1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear.
0: We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Well, today, dress listeners, we are very pleased to welcome fashion educator, researcher, and activist Dr. Ben Barry to the show. Barry is currently the Associate Professor of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the Ryerson School of Fashion in Toronto, Ontario, and founding director of the Center for Fashion Diversity and Social Change at the same university. But starting July 1st, Barry will bring his expertise to the United States when he begins his new job as the Dean of Fashion at Parsons School of Design in. New York City.
1: And as we will learn in today's interview, Barry has been challenging the exclusionary, Eurocentric, and decidedly narrow definition of fashion since he was just 14 years old, Cass. (laughs) I know. Epic. And he has really dedicated his life and career to expanding and redefining fashion beyond its narrow, exclusionary body and gender ideals and norms. And his work celebrates bodies of all shapes and sizes, centering the experiences of disabled, fat, trans, queer, and gender non-conforming individuals. So we are super, super excited for him to join us today on Dress to share his incredible work with you. So Ben, from one New Yorker to a soon-to-be New Yorker, welcome to Dress. And I've already, um, I think, Cass, just so you know, I think our dogs are already friends on Instagram. (laughs)
0: Ben, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. I am a huge admirer of your work and your activism. Um, For our listeners who might not know you though, will you please introduce yourself?
2: Well, first it's Mutual. As such an avid listener and fan of the podcast, I'm very excited to be on it today and to be a guest. So thank you for the invitation. Um, So my name is Ben Barry. And I'm currently an associate professor of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and chair of the School of Fashion at Ryerson University in Toronto. And as of July 2021, I'll be dean of fashion at Parsons in New York.
0: Very exciting.
2: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm a fashion educator, researcher, and I like to think activist. Uh, So much of my work, both in all of these capacities, are really driven by transforming fashion broadly speaking to center equity and justice and ultimately freedom and liberation.
0: Yeah, and I agree. I absolutely think you are an activist. I am such an admirer of of how you bring that into your scholarship. Uh, I think as a historian, I can I almost wonder how I can do that myself um and bring, you know, kind of these historical moments into the present day and use them to affect change and you do that in a really incredible and effective way. And we're going to talk all about it today. In researching your work, I've heard you mention multiple times that you love the stories that clothing can tell. And we, of course, on dress completely agree with you. When did you first realize the narrative possibilities of dress? And when did you realize that you wanted to be one of its storytellers?
2: I think as a queer femme kid growing up, I learned immediately about the power of dress to learn about our bodies and identities and to even feel at home in our bodies. And I remember being like five years old and going through my grandmother's kitchen and taking plastic wrap and literally wrapping it over my body or taking a tea cozy and wearing it as a hat and really just creating looks to play. And I think that that inevitably just taught me about the power that dress can have to tell stories about who we are, who we have been, and who we want to be. And I think that that personal experience led me to really want to explore the role of dress for so many other people, Um, and particularly for people who haven't had their stories and their experiences and their bodies centered within the classroom and within fashion study scholarship.
0: yeah, and your work is really underscored by its disruption and challenging of fashion norms, especially as you just mentioned, um you know this fashion industry's imposition of normative body standards on society. So the fashion industry has played a huge hand, and we've talked about this on dress in really essentially dictating who can and cannot claim a fashionable body. And it's an ideal that we all put ourselves up against. And your awareness of these practices of fashion is something you set to work correcting at a very young age, I find out, through my research. And can you please tell us about the Ben Berry Agency, which, if I'm not mistaken, you started at the age of 14, which is just incredible.
2: I did, yeah, before... I think I even knew what the fashion industry was or certainly what fashion studies was. I started a modeling agency and I started because one of my friends who was a size 16 had taken a modeling course, but was told by all the agencies that they couldn't represent her because she was not the right body size and they wanted her to lose weight. She did not think that was going to be possible or healthy. Her family didn't. And so She didn't know what to do. And I thought that she would be an amazing model. And so I took the photos she had. I sent them to a local magazine in my hometown in Ottawa, Canada, just with a note saying, I think this model would be great. My name, my phone number. I really didn't think much about it after I sent it off. But a few weeks after that, I got a phone call from the magazine's editor who said they received these photos. This model would be great for an editorial they were working on. But they had one question, was I her agent? And I was just like, "Um, yes, of course, (laughs) I am her agent. And then the editor was like, well, what's the name of your agency? And my name sort of popped into my mind. I was like, "Uh, Ben Barry Agency. And with that, my friend got a job. And I started a modeling agency in the basement of my family's home, really to represent my friend, other friends, their families really to create an agency that would represent models who would not at that time be signed by other modeling agencies because they weren't the right size or didn't have the right body or weren't the right age or for all of these reasons that they ruptured fashion's beauty ideal. And I think so much of being 14 and starting this and not knowing anything about fashion, not being involved in the fashion industry allowed me to see things differently. I wasn't cultured into a certain fashion way of thinking. And so for me, the fact that all of these people who I thought were beautiful people couldn't be models, it just, it didn't make sense. And so that's really when I started to, I think, learn firsthand about these ideals of beauty, but also inherently know in myself that these, this didn't make any sense and I wanted to do something about it.
0: And that's such a good point too, that we're cultured into seeing fashion a certain way. And arguably from a very young age, I mean, I know I started reading Vogue from a very young age. So really what spoke to me was kind of the surrealist elements of fashion, but I definitely bought into what fashion was and, you know, what fashion was going to be when I was going to be a fashion designer. So education is something we'll talk about a little bit later on in the podcast too, about how we're really trained into these ideals And at the heart of your work is this mission to redefine and reclaim fashion. But before we dive into that discussion, can you maybe help our listeners understand a little bit what is wrong with fashion? What was wrong? What is wrong with fashion in the first place? This is kind of a tall order. And they have heard some of this from us, but um, I've heard you talk about this and I'd, I'd love if you could explain it a little further here. I
2: think you're so right when you say that we're really cultured into thinking what fashion is. And I think whether it's as consumers, wearers, working in the industry and particularly in North America and the UK, but increasingly around the world, we're taught that there's one history, one story of fashion. We're taught that fashion was born in Europe, um, right? As a result of modernity, industrialization, That is what fashion is. And these very clear boundaries become set around it. And of course, part of that is not just this one history or story, but one idealized fashionable body. And so there becomes a very homogenous and singular idea of fashion that then is perpetuated again and again and again. I think in so many ways, well, one, that that story as we know, is not true, that fashion has existed since time immemorial. And there's been multiple and plural fashion histories, narratives and practices, as you've illuminated right here on this podcast. But even more that all bodies are fashionable. And fashion isn't about a designer garment only. But fashion is about this imagination and creativity and way of fashioning our bodies, building community, creating systems that happens in so many ways. And so it's really this expansive and expanded understanding of fashion that I think we need to put forward. But I think for so many of us, we know inherently is true. Because when we think about our own practices with dress, how we've learned from our families, how we've learned from our friends, we immediately see that the singular story doesn't include us. And the problem isn't us, but it's that singular story of fashion.
0: And I really love that you said fashioning because fashion as a verb, I think is a really powerful expression of identity, not just fashion as this social phenomenon that is largely equated with Europe, um and modernity, but the fashioning of the body, the act and art of dressing and adoring the body, like you just said, it has existed as long as there have been humans on this planet. It is found in cultures around the world. And so it's really about redefining what we know fashion is and what we've been taught fashion is um, for a very long time <laughs> at this point
2: totally. I think I mean, I think we can think of fashion as a system, right that Yes, is a Western colonial capitalist system, but is also systems that concurrently exist around that. Fashion is a verb. It's to fashion, this fashioning, something we all do every day and people all around the world have done. And so I think it's really, again, challenging these singular notions and expanding them.
0: And it's so much more exciting and interesting when we start to do that, when you realize that, you know, fashion systems exist in Japan and China and across the Arab world. I mean, there's just so many more stories to be told and so many beautiful expressions to be celebrated. Moving on to my next question, you really work to cultivate new relationships between the dressed body and the concept of masculinity, which I just find incredibly fascinating, your work in this area. And this was exemplified you've done it in multiple projects but in your project refashioning masculinity specifically can you tell us about this project what inspired it what brought you to this topic
2: Yeah this was a project that I began probably about 5 years ago now and it was started by just thinking of my own experience of dressing as a cisgender man dressing my body and being very conscious of the social setting I was in right at this point as a new pre-tenured assistant professor, having been a PhD student, knowing very well that when I met or ruptured norms of masculinity around dress, that that would be taken up very differently in very different spaces. And I wanted to explore how other men and male-identified people navigated norms around masculinity through their clothing. And I wanted to do that in a way where I could learn about their stories. And so I did this through a series of wardrobe interviews uh, with men that ranged from 18 to 80 years old, a variety of body sizes, ethnicities, sexualities, races, uh, really diverse careers, Uh, a really intersectional sample to understand how they dressed, how they navigated norms of masculinity in everyday life. And the second part of this was actually a fashion show where these same men brought outfits from their wardrobe interview and helped create and take part in a fashion show for a public audience to create this dialogue around these norms of masculinity that exist, that constrained dress, but also in many ways, men with, particularly with privilege, are very complicit in upholding, but also the ways in which men are using and can use dress to rupture sexism and misogyny and hegemonic masculinity. So this idea of centering stories, but also the possibility of fashion to challenge and hopefully transform these very structures.
0: It's really interesting too, because you talk about how fashion's often equated with women's bodies, female body, and you also talk about different male ideal body types, which was interesting to me. I'm talking about kind of this like more um, boxy silhouette that came with fashion in the eighties and nineties, and then how it's replaced by this like waifish, very slim silhouette, but how both of those are still Ideals that people are then having to be put up against and judged up against. Can you talk a little bit about that dominant ideal that you're helping to redefine and push it up against?
2: Yeah, I think so often when we think about these ideals of fashionable bodies, we often think there's one ideal. And I think that's a pretty dominant way to think about it. But in so much of the research I've done, and I think as many listeners will know to be true, often there's many different ideals that hold power and they apply differently to different groups and we fit into different ideals or try to fit into different ideals. And so when I think of menswear, particularly in the US and Europe, there's these two ideals in menswear that exist. There's certainly this muscular male body Um, something that we saw in the 80s and increasingly in the 90s, um, but that has continued in sportswear and underwear advertising of this really sculpted male physique or this slender, androgynous male body that Hedy Slimane and DR Um sort of brought into being, but that's maintained its dominance. And often the conversation within fashion studies has been, well, did the slender ideal replace this more hegemonic muscular ideal and in the work I've done I found well that's not the case we now have these two masculine ideals and in some ways I think it's important to be really critical of this because there's been talk of celebration of the slender ideal well now it allows for a more feminine or androgynous physique to be present we've seen designers become more playful in menswear moving away from these sort of masculine archetypes embracing queer and feminine aesthetics in menswear. But which bodies are able to wear these clothes? Which bodies are able to see themselves in these images? And again, it's primarily quite lean and tall and slender and white to non-disabled men. Or again, it's these same white, non-disabled, cisgender men who are muscular. And these are the two Hegemonic ideals of a male body in fashion. And of course, that excludes a huge amount of men and also makes a huge amount of men feel that they have to achieve these ideals that will never be their bodies.
0: And fashioning masculinities was really an intervention. And I think you talk about this, um, but it becomes obviously apparent after you read it and realize the extent of this project and what it achieved, but an intervention into what men's fashion ideals should be. And then also just challenging, pushing back against, you know, that lack of body diversity, as you've mentioned, in men's fashion. And I'd love if you can talk to us a little bit about Madison Moore's theory of fabulousness, which is I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's fabulous. I have to tell you, I've never engaged, I'm a PhD student, so I read a lot of theory. <laughs> I've never engaged with a theory that just made me immediately feel joy. Like this made me so happy to read this theory and, and then how you expanded upon it. So can you talk to us a little bit more about it?
2: Yes, I mean, gosh, I really hope. I mean, that's why I teach fashion. I practice fashion. Fashion is my life because I think it has this power for us to feel joy. And there's not many things in the world that do that, and that is a very special thing. But of course, it doesn't do that for everyone, and it certainly doesn't do that all the time. And Madison uh, is a scholar, Madison Moore I respect hugely, whose work has greatly influenced how I think. And his theory of fabulousness is grounded in the experiences of queer and trans, black and brown folks who use self-fashioning, use fashion to feel pleasure in their bodies in the face of constant discrimination, oppression, duress, and also to claim space publicly in the world to push up and stretch against these limited ideals and norms around gender, race, and sexuality. And fabulousness is grounded in a practice that isn't about buying luxury fashion, isn't about having a lot of money, but it's about creativity, it's about imagination, and it's about experimentation to put looks together that stretch and expand these narrow norms. I think it's this ability to use fashion as pleasure in the body and also is very public resistance in the face of duress that I was particularly drawn to. And the idea that fashion is not tied to capitalism or tied to having a huge amount of money to spend or differentiate based on classes. All of these euro theories we've often used and thought about when we've been conceptualizing fashion. But that fashion is really about, again, this claiming of space and stretching these categories. And so a lot of my work has been taking Madison's theory and thinking about how does that apply to the ways in which men who are marginalized from dominant notions of masculinity, so men who are trans, who are fat, who are disabled, who are masculine-identified non-binary people, how do they use dress to push back against dominant notions of masculinity? and recognizing that doing so brings them joy, but simultaneously they're sitting with risk for doing that. So, so much of the work is looking at how joy and risk sit together, something Madison talks about. And in my work, thinking around masculinity and fashion, that for men that are pushing back against these masculine norms, they're sitting with joy and risk. And I think when we're thinking about fashion and masculinity, it's recognizing that so many men are very conscious of these norms, are very conscious of these dress codes, and think very intentionally about, if I dress in ways that challenge masculine norms in these contexts, what are the risks of doing that? Am I gonna be fired? Am I not gonna get a job? Will I not get a date? Will I get attacked on the street? And very intentionally decide I'm going to wear something that maybe is more aligned with masculine dress norms to protect myself. And yes, in some ways, it is about then being complicit with dominant notions of masculinity, but it's also about protecting bodies that are marginalized from further and very real oppression. And so, so much of the work is understanding that even though masculinity is privileged, even though men inherent by being masculine in men in different ways, are privileged, that there is still oppression? And how is that privilege put on and taken off in different ways based on different contexts? Because I think it shows the power of how people navigate these very powerful structures of power and inequity in real life through clothes.
0: Wow. Incredible. And um, you quote more, you quote, fabulousness is political glitter a glitter bomb through everyday life. And you say that it's my hope that this article will drop a sparkling glitter bomb onto dominant discourses about men's fashion, masculinity, and the body. And I absolutely think you achieved that. We're gonna talk about a couple of your participants in a minute. Um, But first, in the article you wrote for the fashion theory, On this project, you introduce us to three of the project's participants, including Nathan, who you write, quote, is a 33-year-old white gay working class writer who uses a motorized wheelchair and has limited mobility. His apartment is sparingly furnished with mismatched pieces, including an oak cabinet that he uses as his wardrobe. Inside the cabinet is colorful clothing that confronts the dress histories of disabled people, end quote. I'd love if you could tell us more about these dress histories of disabled people. It is not something, I mean, we've been talking about dominant fashion discourse, and then there is, of course, dominant fashion history discourse. It's not something that is commonly discussed or researched in relationship to fashion or dress history. You're changing that, and I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about it.
2: Yeah, so much of the history of disability in fashion has been one of institutionalization. So where folks who are disabled, deaf, and mad-identified have been really taken from the social world and put into institutions um, to be cared for. But at these institutions, their own clothing, their own style, their own self-fashioning were literally ripped off their bodies and they were placed into these loose, easy-to-take-on-and-off uniform hospital gowns, or these very bland, drab, nameless, gray sweatsuits, but clothes that every single person in this institution would wear, clothes that resulted in the dehumanization of disabled, deaf, and unidentified folks. And so for so long, this very real stereotype that exists that, oh, Disabled people don't care about fashion or aren't interested in fashion, right? That stereotypes comes from a place where the history of fashion and disability has been one of dehumanization, of lack of access, lack of authorship, and certainly a lack of representation or stereotype representation.
0: And this is a really good segue into your current project, your current intervention and in activism, which is Cripping Masculinity which builds off of your past work and continuing to diversify and redefine fashion, what fashion is, who it's for, who practices it. Please tell us about your project.
2: So the new project is definitely that. It's building on what I've done, focusing specifically on fashion and disability, a deaf and mad identity for men and masculine identified folks. And maybe I'll start by saying the word cripping because for some listeners that might be new. And it comes from the pejorative cripple and disability justice advocates and disability studies scholars have reclaimed this, um, reclaimed this pejorative, almost like the way queer has been reclaimed. To use crip both as a political identity and community of disability identified people, but also to think of crip as a verb, which is really to open up with desire for what disability generates in the world and generates by rupturing and transforming ideals and norms around the body way of thinking and way of being. And so this project then is really that it's looking at the experiences of disabled folks in fashion, particularly disabled men and masculine folks, understanding that there's this navigation of some joy and also some oppression, but trying to honor that and tell that story, but not staying at a point of oppression. Because I think so often that's what we hear when we think of disability in fashion, we think of all the ways disabled people are oppressed by ableism in fashion, and that's very real. But I also wanted to ask the question about what benefits, what advantages does the disability experience bring into people's relationship to fashion. How does disability identity and disability experience in fact, open up and generate advantage and benefits and new ways of practicing and understanding and engaging with fashion that stretch, expand, transform how we're even thinking and doing fashion in the world. And so really to flip that conversation where yes, there's oppression, but there's also this inherent benefit and new understanding that's generated by embodied differences. And how can we tell those stories and center those stories in those narratives while also being very mindful of oppression and how we need to challenge that. And so the project follows a very similar format like Refashioning Masculinity, where we're doing a series right now of virtual wardrobe interviews. We will be doing a fashion show and exhibition at the end of the project But what we're specifically doing at the second part is we're co-designing clothing. So we're asking our participants, if you could wear anything that would express your intersectional disabled and masculine identity, what would that be? How can we maybe take a piece of clothing you have already and hack it up or change it and add to it and build this ideal outfit that expresses who you are? And so in addition to the interviews, we're going to be generating knowledge through practice, through making, through co-design with our participants. And then we'll be having them model in a fashion show with the clothes they've created, or we'll be displaying those clothes in an exhibition uh, to showcase what they've created. With the idea of sharing new narratives, well, at least narratives that are new to most non-disabled folks about disability and fashion, to really understand what disability generates in the world and generates in fashion that can expand and stretch and transform our understandings.
0: We will, of course, provide links to both of these projects that we've discussed about, um, especially your Instagram account for Cripping Masculinity, um, so that our listeners can really engage with, with the project as it continues, because it's it's currently happening. And I look forward to, to seeing the fashion show and the exhibition. And um, you'll, of course, keep us up to date on that. So in addition to creating welcoming spaces for diverse bodies, how are you hoping that this project will mobilize social change in the fashion industry? And are there any companies that you would like to highlight that are already working in this space? I hope the project will
2: informed change in fashion and in society. And I think two main ways, there may be three main ways actually. I think first and foremost is I hope it changes attitudes and worldviews about disability. That so often disability is seen as a personal tragedy, a shameful, as a sight of no future. And I really want to rupture that understanding and show the desire, value, and worthiness that disability brings into the world and brings into fashion. The second part is I hope that with this incredible understanding of what the disability experience brings to fashion, I hope that this project will help create pathways, opportunities for disability identified folks to enter fashion school, to enter the industry, that we can think of ways to create access. Because this is certainly one group that both education and the industry have not focused on intentionally and deliberately to bringing into their spaces. They require significant structural change to reduce ableism. And I hope that this will start that dialogue and start that work. The third thing I hope it does is really help the fashion industry rethink its design and representation of disability. So often we've thought about adaptive wear or adaptive fashion as the only option of fashion for disability-identified people. And I think that while adaptive fashion can certainly work, often it is taking clothes that start with a non-disabled body, changing and altering it, for a disabled body. But I think instead we need to start with the disabled body and the disabled narrative. And what happens when we center that? And I think what happens is we stop designing from a way where we're trying to normalize a non-disabled body or hide a non-disabled body or conform to this idea of the norm. And in fact, when we start with the disabled body, we see new ways of designing, new silhouettes, the possibilities that disability opens up. And we see the disabled body for everything that it is and everything it brings into the world versus trying to just adapt what already exists that are all based on this non-disabled norm. And I think a designer who really does this, whose work inspires me incredibly, is the label Rebirth Garments. And Rebirth Garments is based in Chicago, and their mantra is about radical visibility, which is about exactly what it sounds. It's about celebrating, highlighting the disabled body through clothing, dressing the disabled body as it is. And Rebirth Garments is truly intersectional, where it's also thinking about fat bodies, it's thinking about trans and non-binary bodies, and it doesn't try to disguise them to conform to a norm, but instead works to dress them in ways that highlight these bodies as they are. And of course, I say this also recognizing that there is significant risk, as we've talked about, with dressing bodies that disrupt norms as they are. And that there's very real risks when these bodies dress as they are out in the world in terms of violence, in terms of further economic advantage or disadvantage, in terms of safety and violence. And so we're always balancing this, right? I'm very aware that... There's a real need for security to sometimes conform to norms based on our world, the way the world works. But I think we need to share those stories as well, that sometimes we dress in ways that conform to norms, not because that's who we are, not because that's what we want to do, but purely for survival. And I think by sharing these stories, we're able to understand that what might appear to be complicit in some ways or desiring a norm isn't actually the case but it's simply about safety and trying to navigate this world that we're in. And so, so much then of the change I hope that all this will make is recognizing what this kind of radical visibility that Rebirth Garments talks about, right, that or fabulousness, what that can do if we embrace that, but also understanding that doing that has risk and that some people are nervous about that, not because that's not who they are, but because they purely as Madison would say, need to get a sandwich and don't want to get harassed or beaten up doing that.
0: And norm's kind of a dirty word in these contexts. But I mean, I, I would think that once these images get out into the world and we start getting used to them and they just become a part of our, our parlance and a part of our society, then it becomes normalized. Like you said, radical visibility with the idea that someday it won't be radical anymore. It'll just be how we all live together because we're all human.
2: Yes. I mean, I think so much is just embracing the fact, embracing our humanity, that we're not a monolith. And I think it's challenging the very core of fashion that is based on this ideal and this norm, that is based on these ideas of exclusion and status, right? So much, at least Western capitalist fashion, that is the ethos. And I think that is so much of what I hope my work challenges, opposes, and changes. And I think so much of my own learning as a fashion scholar and teacher has come, for instance, from Indigenous fashion on Turtle Island, which is Canada and the U.S., and understanding that since time immemorial, Indigenous fashion has had a completely different set of worldviews to this capitalist Western fashion system. Fashion is a way to feel in relationship and harmony with each other and with the natural world and animals, fashion to build community and connection, fashion to celebrate all bodies and different identities. And I think when we start to think about the ways fashion has been defined and understood and taken up in cultures outside of this Western capitalist fashion industry, it really exposes that this one, notion that fashion is about an ideal or a norm that we need to aspire towards. It's just one constructed understanding of fashion. But for so many cultures at so many different times, continuing today, fashion is had very different meanings. And I think that that's really powerful because as we move and as we work to transform, we realize that at least within a Western fashion system, this is just one idea of fashion, but it's certainly not the only one. And that helps us start to question it and also take it down and transform it.
0: Yeah. And again, you're using fashioning as a verb too, which I just think is really powerful in dismantling that one singular idea of fashion as a system because it is a practice and an act. I cannot let you go without talking about fashion education. Uh, when we talk about systemically racist and exclusionary practices within the fashion industry, in many ways, that begins with the very institutions that train the next generation of fashion professionals, be it designers, feature magazine editors, historians like myself. So in what ways are these institutions complicit in these systemically exclusionary practices and how will you be working to change these practices through your new position as the Dean of Fashion at Parsons? Maybe that's a huge question.
2: (laughs) So much of my own scholarship and working with community and teaching and my modeling agency, and all of this has really exposed me to how these like structures of power and inequity work in the world. And being located in a fashion school, I couldn't help but start to apply everything I was doing in my research to the institutions that I was located in. And like the fashion industry, fashion education is no different. Our institutions are rooted in these continuing legacies of colonization and slavery and the ways they manifest in binaries and fatphobia and ableism and white supremacy and transphobia and all of these other exclusionary practices. And we've talked and you've talked about it on the podcast, the way that comes out in the teaching and the practice of fashion history, the ways that comes out in fashion design in thinking of the mannequin or the Judy and who that represents or who that doesn't represent, forgetting about designing for human living, breathing, fleshy bodies, all of these things in our practice about what we teach and what we don't teach and how we teach that uphold these narrow systems. And so certainly there's a change in curriculum that's necessary, and I think within fashion education we've begun this conversation. But I think it has to go much deeper than that. This is really now about thinking about practices and policies in fashion schools. So hiring policies, the culture of fashion schools, recruitment, admissions, All of these things. And so one example that's a very practical example, that's something I've worked very hard to do at Ryerson, and I certainly want to bring to Parsons and do there, is thinking about systemic barriers in the hiring of faculty that privilege particular experiences or particular qualifications over others and negate systemic barriers to employment or higher education. So thinking that to get a tenure-track job in a fashion school at least in the history theory side, you would need a PhD. Or if it's going to be in the design side, you would need ideally to work for a renowned fashion brand or an MFA from a prestigious institution. And thinking about equivalencies. So what about the role of public education? What about the role of activism? What about the role of micro enterprise, of mentorship with youth? Right? Are these not equivalencies to teaching in higher education, to these terminal degrees, to experience. And right, it's not that they're they're equivalent, and they bring in different valuable experiences, but experiences that are needed to broaden education and culture, and to ensure that a much wider range of people are going to be at the front of the classroom teaching. And so I've been working really hard to reimagine what a position posting looks like, and to imagine what equivalencies look like. So positions are open to a wide variety of folks to bring in that experience into the school. And I think that that is the next phase of this transformation in fashion education. It's thinking the curriculum is key, we need to work on that, but that in and of itself won't make change. We need to think about who's teaching, we need to think about how we're recruiting students, And students who don't have access and how we can provide bursaries and scholarships and supports for them. And once they come into the fashion school that there is support in the culture. So we started at Ryerson a Black Fashion Students Association, specifically to support black students. Um, So they have a space to support each other with mentors along their journey that we have a beading circle to bring Indigenous and non-Indigenous students together over the practice of beading, to talk about Indigenous history and fashion and build kinship, that this is the deeper transformation that we need to make. And that it's so important because fashion school is the birthplace of the worldviews and practices of the next generation of fashion academics, fashion designers, and fashion business leaders. And so... This deep systemic change, if we want to see it in the industry, if we want to see it in the world, it needs to start with an education.
0: Well, this is very exciting. I mean, I think in light of Black Lives Matter movement, especially within the last year, we're seeing so many like systemic changes happening within the fashion industry. And so it's really amazing to see it happening at the core of fashion training and fashion education. And I cannot wait to see what you do at Parsons, the students that come out of there moving forward. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: No, thank you so much. It's been a thrill as an avid listener to now be a guest. So thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Ben, thank you so much for being here. Dress listeners, please join me and Cass in checking out Ben's past and current projects by heading over to refashioningmasculinity.com and also crippingmasculinity.com. That's C-R-I-P-P-I-N-G. You can also follow along at Cripping Masculinity Project as it develops on Instagram at Cripping Masculinity. And we will, of course, be posting these links in our show notes so you can check those in the episode descriptions and also on our Instagram this week. And for any of those of you who want to dig in a little bit deeper into Ben's incredible research, you can check out his open access academic journal, Fashion Studies, at fashionstudies.ca,
0: as in Canada. Yes, Ben is actually the co-founder and co-editor of that annual publication with past dress guest, Allison Matthews-David. And as someone who is really kind of currently grappling with the (laughs) for-profit aspect of academia, I wholeheartedly support Ben and Allison's commitment to keeping this publication free to their readers. And that means we all have access to some of the latest and most exciting research in the field of fashion studies. So check it out. Yes, please do. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you remember to
1: celebrate your body next time you get dressed. Please remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is of course where we always post images that accompany each week's episode. You can also follow us on
0: Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday.